Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Cindy Peretti. Cindy is the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Foundation Medicine. This company does genomic analysis on tumors. The idea is that if you know more of this molecular nitty-gritty information, things like the underlying gene mutations that send cancer cells into out-of-control growth sprees, then you at least occasionally ought to come up with more effective strategies on how to treat the patient with targeted therapy. Sometimes this information even generates new insights that guide the creation of new drugs. Foundation, now a decade old and entering its adolescence, has grown quite a bit. It was acquired a year ago by Roche in a deal that valued the company at $5.3 billion. But in many ways, the company has only scratched the surface. Only a tiny percentage of cancer patients today get genomic profiles done of their tumors. Cindy joined the company as CEO in February after a long career in cancer therapeutics during the go-go days at Genentech. Her last job before becoming CEO was Senior Vice President of Global Oncology Product Strategy at Roche. Cindy's job and that of her executive team at Foundation Medicine will be to see how far they can go toward fulfilling the promise of genomic-based precision medicine for cancer. There are a lot of pieces to that puzzle. Foundation will need to become more thoroughly integrated into everyday cancer care, not just at top academic centers, but at community oncology centers that treat about 70% of U.S. cancer patients. It needs to ensure that it gathers the evidence it needs to win reimbursement for its tests from payers. It also needs to make sure it stays nimble on the technological edge, or at least doesn't get complacent with its current solution, especially as new types of biological information emerge beyond DNA alone that create a more contextual picture of cancer. If you have any illusions about how hard any of this is, Timmerman Report subscribers can read more about it in an April article I wrote about a clinical genomics database that Foundation has been building for years with its partner, Flatiron Health. Now, before we start the episode, a couple of quick things. Do you enjoy this podcast? Your organization can support it through a sponsorship. There aren't many places where you see an audience of three to 4,000 biotech leaders tuning in every other week for an immersive, in-depth conversation. Are you interested in raising your profile with this high-powered group of listeners? Email me at luke at timmermanreport.com. The other thing you can do to invest in quality journalism is to purchase a subscription to Timmerman Report. It's $149 a year for an individual subscriber. That gets you two to three articles a week. Companies and universities with multiple readers can purchase a sharing license. And when you do that, you'll be able to read not just my writing, but in-depth reports from savvy contributing writers that I edit, like Stacey Lawrence, Asher Mullard, Alex Harding, Leora Schiff, Kyle Sarakawa, and more. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to get yours today. Now, please join me and Cindy Peretti on the long run. 
With me today is Cindy Peretti, the new, I guess we can still say relatively new CEO of Foundation Medicine. Uh, Really one of the very important companies in oncology today, gathering information on tumor genomic profiles. Thanks for joining me today, Cindy. Thanks a lot, Luke. So um, we're going to get into your um, uh, your vision and plan for Foundation Medicine uh, later in the show. But uh, as you know, as a listener, uh, I like to start out with a little bit of context on the person and how you got to this moment of uh, interesting possibility here at a company like Foundation Medicine. So maybe you can just start me off, Cindy. Like, where are you from? Where were you born and raised? So, Luke, I was born in Buffalo, New York. It was a very short tenure there, though, because we moved um, when I was about six months old to Madison, Wisconsin, and my dad started his Ph.D. there. Um, in organizational behavior. So I was living in Wisconsin until just about the age of five. And when my father finished his PhD, he took a role at Michigan State. So the whole family moved to Michigan. Um, And I stayed there till I was about 13. And then he took a new role at the State University of New York in Albany. And I moved there when I was 13 and stayed there through high school and and went to uh, undergrad in New York State. Wow, you have a Badger reference in there. You know I'm a Badger too, right? I know Graduate you from are. University I was of Wisconsin. To f- figure out where you are from. My father uh, grew up in Beloit. Oh wow, and he did organizational behavior. He did. So that sounds like uh, a business sort of major. It's it's psychology and business both, it is ex- right? It is exactly that. Yes, and um, when I told him that I thought I wanted to be a scientist. I could see he was a little deflated, <laughs> but he, he allowed me to embrace it anyway. And when did this uh, thought occur to you that you wanted to go into science? So I, you know, I really enjoyed science in high school, and I think, if, uh, I think I identified that that was the path I wanted to take probably around 10th grade. Now, what was going on kind of in the world of science that kind of sparked your imagination? It's interesting. So I, one is that I really liked the courses I was taking, and I had a really great teacher in high school who took sort of all of the theoretical and made it real for the students, made it real to date. Um, and the second part was I just had family members who had various things. I had a, my closest cousin was diagnosed with um, type 1 diabetes, um, later in life my sister with MS, uh, but just things happening around me got me intrigued about science and about really primarily understanding diseases, maybe the biology behind it, the why, why does it happen, and how do you, how do you treat it? And were you thinking that you would work in a lab? Is that, did you imagine kind of putting on a white lab coat and doing experiments? <laughs> I did. In fact, I, I, I did. I really enjoyed working in a lab when I did. And probably if you asked me in my early 20s, you know, what was I going to do for most of my life? I would have said I was going to stay in the lab because I really enjoyed it. And where did you get started with uh, this, uh, your undergraduate biology education? I went to a state university in New York because my dad at that point was a dean and was very keen for me to stay uh, close, not close to home, but close within the system. So I went to a small college in upstate New York called Potsdam. And uh, I majored in biology and got a minor in chemistry. 
And so I guess uh, staying close to home, state university, uh, that kind of saves on the tuition. It was probably ridiculously <laughs> cheap compared sure to what does. we pay today. <laughs> I think with my father going getting his PhD when I was a when I was a you know young in life, I don't think that that by the time my sister and I were going off to college, he was probably just you know coming out of paying off student loans and things like that. Was this a, a good place for you to explore? Yeah, it was. It was a really small school in the Adirondacks. And so the types of things I explored there, I had a research grant uh, through the state uh, to look at black fly larvae, ironically, in the rivers and streams of the Adirondacks, because that was the that was the issue that was plaguing northern uh, New York at the time. But it was a really it was a small university um, very, very much embedded in research, even with undergrads, and so allowed people to do a lot of work around grants and things like that. Okay, so so it was like a pretty good place to learn. I, I kind of like to go visit hearing you describe it. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually you take a, a detour into business. You go get an MBA. How did you uh, decide to make that move? Having been in the lab for a number of years, it was intriguing me the feedback that we would often get from the commercial side of our organization, just talking about um, how we thought about the business side of things. And so I wanted to understand that better and had the opportunity through the company I was working at, Chiron, had an executive program with a local university. And so I was provided the opportunity to get an MBA. Um, and it was really helpful. It was really helpful to be able to marry what I was doing in the lab to understand the commercial aspects, and it provided an opportunity for me to then move out of the lab. Okay, maybe I missed a step here. You you got your scientific training and then went to go work in biotech at one of those early companies, I did. Chiron. I did, yeah. And, and it was there that, um, you know, one of the first meetings that we were working on a drug that we I had worked on developing when I was in the labs, um, targeting FLIT and KDR, which is, you know, VEGF receptors. And just listening to our commercial organization talk about how they were thinking about it was very intriguing. And so when there was an opportunity to get an MBA, um, I said, sign me up. <laughs> okay, okay. So you're um, at Chiron. You were doing um, science like you had been trained to, but realized pretty early on that there's this whole other side of the organization, the, the business side of the house, and looking for linkages, uh, how those things connect. Exactly, yes. And it was, you know, often if you think about um, within a team in, say, a pharmaceutical company, or even I'd say here at Foundation, you have aspects of all sides of the business. You have research represented. You have somebody from the development organization, the clinical and regulatory, and you have the commercial organization. So it really provides an opportunity um, for learning. You know, it's great to sit on these cross-functional teams because you have the opportunity to see all angles of what it takes from research to get a product to patients in the marketplace. And so that was really intriguing to me. I had got to spend a little bit of time in drug development um, and then also had the opportunity after getting my MBA to spend time on the strategy and commercialization side. Okay, okay. So how many years were you there at Chiron? At Chiron, I was there for about seven years. Now, this sounds like it really did give you exposure to a, a lot of major aspects of the whole biotech enterprise. And, and Chiron, you know, had its kind of like star-crossed history. <laughs> Maybe this came <laughs> later, probably after you left. Yes. Yeah. No, we, uh, while I was there, 
we had some, yeah, some, we had some exciting drugs. We had a partial acquisition from Novartis, and then I had left shortly after that. Okay, so what was your next move? So my sister had uh, developed MS. I talked about that earlier, and I was very interested in understanding a little bit more about that disease. So I took a role at a small startup in the Bay Area called Athena Neurosciences, and we were eventually um, acquired by a company called Elan, and I was working on a drug called Tasabri, which is now marketed by Biogen. But it really gave me an opportunity to understand more about that disease, um, about the impact of the disease, but also about what treatments were available for MS. And for me, that was very personal, and I'm really happy that I had the opportunity to do that, and I still very much keep a close eye on uh, what's happening in the MS world. Wow, this is really making me feel old, Cindy, because this is one of those early stories that I covered back when Tysabri was, I mean, this really potent, effective drug for MS, right. for patients with severe forms. And then came along the, the horrible side effect of PML. Right. Uh, and, and what do we do with that? And it pulled the drug off the market for a while before it was returned. Were, were you there for that whole drama? I was there. I was there. Um, I was transitioning... Yeah, probably. So it was pulled off the market for a period of time and then back on the market. And it was after that that I that I transitioned out of Elan and ended up joining Genentech. But it was really hard, right? Because you knew the difference you were making for patients. And you saw patients having really robust effects that they possibly wouldn't have had without the drug. But then along comes PML. And so trying to understand how can we test for that, how can we understand which patients would be more predisposed to that was really an all-hands-on-deck effort of that team. Yeah, I'm sure there's probably a book in that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But okay, so then you make the move over to Genentech, 2004. And this is right in the middle of Genentech's uh, glory days, uh, really emergence uh, in oncology with Rituxan and Herceptin and Avastin, all these targeted drugs. Um, what uh, What drew you there and what was your first job? A couple things. I had been living in Europe, which we didn't we didn't necessarily talk about, but my husband and I had made a conscious decision that we'd had our, our first child, that we were going to move back to the United States just because my son was probably about a year out of starting um, kindergarten and wanted to be closer to family. And so we decided to look for jobs specifically in the U.S. at that time. And Genentech um, had a very exciting program called Avastin, which was looking at VEGF and probably the most successful VEGF program um, since I had been working on it many years ago. So I had been following that as well. And so the opportunity arose that they were looking for a, we called a project team leader or life cycle leader um, for the Avastin program. And so I interviewed for that. and, And that's what brought me to Genentech. Now, 2004, if my dates are correct, this was right around the time that, or maybe a year after, they had gotten the crucial phase three data that got this thing through the FDA for its first approval? Yeah, so so there had been one negative study in second-line breast cancer, and they had their first positive study in colorectal cancer. And shortly after that, they had positive studies then in breast cancer and lung cancer. And so it was really an exciting time for that program within the first year of my joining uh, to see three positive phase threes. And 
the company, you know, Sue Hellman and Art Levinson were really excited because uh, having a more targeted approach was something that they had been, you know, had been following obviously through Rituxan and Herceptin and the drugs alike. Uh, and so they were interested to see how big this could be if you were to stop vasculature growth to tumors, both in solid tumors, and we actually ran a couple tests in, in liquid tumors that, that weren't positive, but um, we had the opportunity really at that time with Avastin to say what's possible with this molecule. And um, it was over the course of my first two years there, we had a pretty tall task, which is um, the team was asked to expand the program as rapidly as possible in as many tumor types that we had a scientific rationale to do. And so within a two-year period, I got to work with this amazing team. We moved it into 39 different tumor types um, across, yeah, as I said, liquid and solid, and really had an opportunity to grow this program to really understand where it could make a difference, where uh, targeting VEGF would make a difference for patients. And um, I had never been involved with something like that, that sort of rapid growth of phase twos and phase threes. If you, if you talk to many people in the industry, to get 39 of those started in a period of less than two years was a miraculous test of uh, <laughs> this team. And um, it, was, it was fantastic. It was one of the best teams I've ever worked on. Uh, really enjoyed it. It sounds really uh, intense. And I mean, it does go back to the scientific mechanism. Uh, right. For those unfamiliar, I mean, this is old hat for you, but you know, it's the this idea that tumors have uh, vasculature that grows really fast to enable them to um, grow and spread. And if you can interrupt that, um, that, um, that could be a good way to kind of choke off the blood supply, uh, make it uh, easier for chemotherapy and other therapies to uh, kill the tumors, keep them under control. And that ought to work across a variety of uh, Tumor types, and but and and you mentioned the word life cycle, right? Which yes. which you know, there's a patent on this thing, and it doesn't last forever. And so you've got a window of opportunity here to figure out just how many tumor types this thing can work in. Can you get it on the market? Can you you know get gather the evidence uh, and and adequately uh, promote this thing to the clinical community so that it can reach the widest number of people uh, and, and and create the most benefit and you know and as a business make the most money. Yeah, no, and, and, you know, theoretically, if you think about it, starving vasculature, it makes sense. So it was, there were a lot of obvious places to test this, and we certainly had some surprises where we didn't see positive data, but the concept behind it um, made a lot of sense that you'd be able to use this broadly. And, you know, I think about the folks I got to work with at that point were people like Sue Hellman, um, Bob Mask, Wem Fife, David Shankine, who we both know, Hal Barron, um, Sandra Horning came on towards the end, uh, but it was a really phenomenal group of individuals, and I, I really, really enjoyed it. Okay, so you were there for how long? I led that team till 2007, the first time, and I passed the baton to uh, Sheila Guthraji, who I know you interviewed as well. Um, yeah. And in 2007, uh, the company had asked if um, I could move back to Europe. So we were doing so many clinical trials in oncology at that time at Genentech that Genentech was running out of patients essentially in the United States because that is where we had the right to operate because the Roche Group owned 50% of Genentech at the time. And so Genentech 
asked Roche if we would be open to allowing Genentech to operate clinical trials outside of the U.S., and they said yes. And so I moved back to London and opened up an office for Genentech in the U.K., and one in Singapore. And uh, just as we were about to open up our Latin American office, we were acquired by Roche. And that was 2009, I yes. think. Now, you stayed uh, as part of the integration for I did. a while. And yes. what, did you, what, what did you do and what was different after that happened? Yeah, so they asked if, if I could come back to Avastin, because at that point, many of the trials were beginning to read out that we had started, and if I would be open to being the lifecycle leader globally. So when working for Genentech, we were only accountable uh, for the United States, for getting approval in the United States and marketing in the United States. And with Roche, Avastin um, was available in 94 countries. And so they asked if I would come back and take more of a global perspective for Avastin. So I did that for a couple years, and it was fantastic. You can imagine with the number of studies, I think we had about 13 studies read out in that time frame. We were doing launches, um, well, first getting regulatory approvals and then launches around the globe. And so it was a great learning experience. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but I also happened to have my, my second child, my daughter at that time, and was struggling to keep the pace of traveling around the world um, looking after Avastin. And so I had a crucial conversation with my manager at the time um, about possible next steps for me that would allow me to be a little bit more local. And uh, in fact, talking with Hal Barron, uh, he suggested that I, I talk to our head of global regulatory, and I did. And so I made a move into our regulatory organization, which wasn't an obvious move for my career, but was a fantastic move when I look back retrospectively in the sense that there's so much to learn. And if you think about how fast uh, the regulatory agencies are changing their stance on things around the globe. It was a fascinating role. Interesting. Now, were you still in Europe at this time? At this time, I had moved back to California. So okay. I was in San okay. Francisco. But global regulatory. So you're thinking about FDA as well as um, EMA, EMA. SFDA. Um, we did a lot of work with Japan, China, all around the globe. But primarily, FDA and EMA were... Uh, the approvals that many countries anchored off of. So this was also, I mean, it's good for the family, son and daughter at home, yes. but um, you're also learning a piece of the business that um, a, a lot of people in executive roles don't really take a tour of duty through there. <laughs> it's really important, uh, but um, not super well understood. Correct. And, and, and I, you know, you don't realize until you get into a role like that how much there is to understand. I think each country operates slightly differently, although I said that most countries will anchor off of an approval from the U.S. or Europe. They often also have their own subtleties, right? So standard of care looks different around the globe depending on the disease. And so there was a lot of, um, a lot of interesting things for me to learn there. Now, very briefly, what was your husband doing? So my husband, um, when we lived in the UK both times, my husband was in banking. He was um, a derivatives trader. And then when we moved back um, the second time, we made a decision that it was going to be important for one of us to stay home because my son was, I think, in about third or fourth grade and my daughter was three or four. And so um, we made a decision that uh, whoever was to get 
the job first as we were coming back, and I happened to get one, you know, stay within Roche, that the other would stay home. So to be honest with you, there was a point in time where I didn't know if I was going to stay home or if he was going to stay home, but we both felt it was important one of us were there. Well, I asked that partly for that reason, because, you know, now it's becoming clear that your career is taking off, and this is often a point when, you know, couples need to make a a decision like that yes. uh, because it's very, very hard for, you know, both of them to be working 80 hours a week when you got kids at home. <laughs> no, it's true. And it's funny. Um, on a, a side note, when I first, when he first said he was going to stay home, I was a bit nervous about that because he had a pretty intense job in London and I was trying to picture him raising two small children, uh, but he's absolutely brilliant at it. Kudos to him. <laughs> now, here's an interesting p- part in your journey, which you do mention like in your official bio about, I think by about 2012, you decide to take a hiatus, as you put it, or yes. to go to Sarah Cannon Research Institute. How did that come about? We had done a lot of work with Sarah Cannon, in particular on Avastin. And Sarah Cannon, for those who don't know, uh, is a community practice that is comprised of Tennessee Oncology and Florida Cancer. But what they started is bringing clinical trials to the community. So prior to the start of Sarah Cannon, most clinical trials were run uh, solely at academic centers. And so this was a great concept. Um, It certainly was integral, I think, for the success of the Avastin program. And I watched what they were able to do in really connecting us with more of a view of what a patient um, absolutely needs in a clinical trial versus what a biotech or pharma needs from the clinical trial and how do you marry both of those. And so I always found that interesting. And they had an opening and approached me and asked if I would be interested in joining. And I hadn't had the chance before to really have the patient lens or the physician lens. Maybe I thought I did when I would spend time um, visiting centers, if that makes sense, meeting with KOLs. But I, don't, I know now that I really didn't understand what a day in the life is for a treating physician, what a day in the life is for a patient who's on a clinical trial. And so that provided the opportunity that was um, really fantastic learnings and the opportunity to work at a place with some physicians who really care about making a difference for their patients and making a difference in a community setting. Yeah, you're really now walking in a different set of shoes. You're seeing a whole different side of the equation. You are. And it's funny, you know, even if I look back to clinical trial design um, during my time at Genentech or my time at Roche, we spent a lot of time thinking about what would be really important data points to collect for the regulators, for us to inform future research But I don't feel like we spent as much time talking about if we collected those data points, what burden did it put on the patient? And when you have time to spend in clinic, if I can just, you know, as an example for phase one clinical trials, every patient has to spend the first two days doing PK draws, which means you're going to have to live near the center. You're going to have to have your family sitting with you for 12, 13, 14 hour days. And it it really puts a lot on a patient. And so it gave me a different lens um, when I did return back to biotech and pharma to just think about things differently. Yeah, yeah. How many times does the patient need to come into the clinic? How many times do they got to get poked and prodded? Uh, how disruptive is this to 
I don't know, holding down a job or doing whatever it is they want to do, what stress is there on the family. These things are kind of, I think, theoretical in the minds of a lot of people in the industry. Uh, but it's different when you um, you see it up close uh, and, and you're around people who are living that experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and it was interesting because the physicians, I can now reflect back and think about times in which we had advisory board meetings prior to my joining Sarah Cannon and getting feedback from physicians and sometimes um, not understanding the brevity of it until you're actually in that situation and you realize the essentially the burden that you can put on a patient. And so what, you know, each one of the things that you're asking for in a clinical trial, you want to make sure there's an important, that, that data is so important that you're going to use it in a variety of ways because you're really asking a lot of those patients and their family. Do you like listening to this podcast? You can show your support in two meaningful ways. One, you can sponsor the long run and reach three to 4,000 biotech leaders in an immersive listening experience every other week. Another simple alternative is to subscribe to Timmerman Report. Go to timmermanreport.com slash subscribe. Interested in a group sharing license? Email me at luke at timmermanreport.com. So how long were you there at Sarah Cannon? So I was, I was at Sarah Cannon for about two years and had the opportunity to work with both the phase one, the phase two, and the phase three clinical units, as well as spend time out in the community with Florida Cancer and Tennessee Oncology. And really, um, it was nice. I think it was nice for the Sarah Cannon team to have somebody from pharma who could provide a perspective of what Sometimes when they had meetings with pharma, what did they mean by that? Or what were they thinking when they were asking these questions? And then vice versa for me to have a very different perspective of what it takes to be in clinical practice today, especially when the biology is moving so quickly. So, you know, I, I often now think back to the days at Sarah Cannon and many of the community physicians that, uh, that I'd met or worked with and think, cancer biology is moving so rapidly. How are they keeping up with all of this? Um, and in parallel, I was able to, um, when I did go back into pharma, take, take a lot of those learnings with me. Yeah. So, okay. So this would have been 2012 to 2014. You come back to uh, Genentech, Roche. Uh, was that always kind of the understanding, by the way, that, the, that you would sort of go off on a sabbatical of sorts? Or, or did you yeah. like have to have a conversation <laughs> about a new job and everything else? So I taught, when I left, I talked to Hal Barron about the opportunity and said that I was interested in going, but I was, I, you know, I loved my work at Genentech and Roche and wasn't clear that this was um, an obvious path for me, but I was so intrigued by the patient and physician side, I felt like I needed to do it. And so he, he also was encouraging me uh, to, to take a look at it. After um, two years, my family, my kids were born in the UK and had grown up in the UK and San Francisco, and were just really keen to be in the San Francisco environment a little bit more than in the Nashville environment. And so the family was um, asking a lot. They wanted to, not asking a lot, but they really wanted to move back to California. And so I had a conversation with both uh, the folks at, at Genentech as well as the team at Sarah Cannon. And it was, there was a position that was open as the head of hematology and it made sense to go back. And the nice piece is we still work together very closely in all the roles I've had. Um, Sarah Cannon is always a big part of the development programs and the things that we do. 
Okay, so you go back for a second stint at Genentech. Yes. Um, but a lot of the same people are still there. <laughs> Great team. Um, you're, it's familiar surroundings. And But then, um, I guess, a few years go by. We don't need to dwell on this. But you, you get, um, h- how did Foundation Medicine enter the picture? I guess, I mean, Roche acquired Foundation Medicine somewhere in those years. And, and how, did, how did you end up getting connected there? Yeah, you know, if I can, I know we were just talking about Sarah Cannon. The first experience I had with Foundation Medicine was while I was there. Mike Pellini came to visit us in the early days of Foundation Medicine. And at Sarah Cannon, we had our own, um, our own profiling where we tested about 45 genes. And then when Mike came in and suggested the possibility of doing comprehensive genomic profiling with 300 plus genes, I found it really intriguing. And you realized the value of the approach Foundation Medicine was taking. I really saw that at that time. Coming back into the roles at Genentech and Roche, it became more and more important, right, as we're developing these highly targeted therapies without comprehensive genomic profiling, it doesn't matter how amazing your therapies are, they're not going to get to patients. And so there was this aha moment of we really need to ensure that profiling takes off around the globe, that, that physicians and patients see the value in it, because it's really going to allow them to get the best possible treatment for their specific disease. And so in the roles in hematology and oncology head, I, I just became more and more and more and more a believer of FMI. And when they approached me about the possibility of joining as the CEO, um, it was, I, I want to say it was a no-brainer. The ability to ensure that comprehensive genomic profiling was going to take off around the globe in my, is my belief the best way we are going to get the best therapies to patients. And so when it was presented, it was um, a very quick, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to come back to this in a bit, but you know, this is where I started paying attention to the foundation medicine story, really from the very early going, like the series A round, because this is kind of what I like to do. But, uh, you know, when an idea comes along like this, that uh, we're going to, we've now got DNA sequencing, uh, it's getting better, faster, cheaper, it's going to give us much more vivid information about what is driving the growth of those tumors, the metastasis. Uh, This is information, better information should yield better decisions. I mean, it, it it may not, you know, be so obvious right in the beginning, but it will take some time. It will get there. This is like a, a long quest, 10, 20 years beyond to really get this thing global, as you say. And, you know, I remember around the beginning, like this is, remember when Steve Jobs uh, had his cancer and he got his tumor sequenced. This was a uh, cost like half a million dollars. But at that, that was around the time when Foundation Medicine was getting started, and they could put together something that you could see could become a business and could become, you know, much cheaper, consistent quality uh, in a way that, you know, could, could get to everyday people. Um, that's, that's the long-term vision, right? Yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. And the concept that you just highlighted is really important. It's about making sure that both physici- there's physician awareness as well as patient awareness and that they're adopting it. You know, the other big challenge that we have that we continue to really work on is around reimbursement so that we can make sure it's available to all patients that are, are, are diagnosed with late stage cancer. 
And it really is huge in informing clinical treatment decision making. And, and certainly, as I reflect back on Sarah Cannon, I can see that firsthand as we continue to see the biology, the underlying biology of cancer unfold in front of us and all of these amazing therapies developed, you recognize what an important tool this is in decision making for every physician. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Sarah Cannon and they had their 45 gene test. I mean, there were, around the time Foundation Medicine was getting started, uh, you know, all, a lot of these thought leading institutions uh, and, and community oncology, even may, maybe in some cases, you know, they could order their own sequencing machine and create their own panel and kind of do this tumor profiling themselves, or so they thought, and, you know, maybe have a little bit of this business for themselves on the side. Uh, but, you know, do they really have the people and the processes to do this at high volume, high consistency, high quality, like a company, like Foundation Medicine is incentivized to do? I mean, I think this is all easier said than done, uh, but that's part of what, you know, you're up against. That's part of the business challenge, right? Yes, no, it's, um, it is not an easy feat. It's, it was very um, eye-opening for me to arrive here. And really, I spent, on my first day, I had an hour-long tour of the labs that went to three and a half hours. I'm not so sure how happy the lab tour uh, guide was. <laughs> I had lots of great questions. But what you recognize is that doing something like this at scale um, requires a really concerted effort. It requires people, as an example, up front, thinking about the genomics every day. We have a small team here who's just looking at the landscape and trying to understand what are the most relevant genes that we need to test today? What are the next generation of genes that we're seeing in preclinical research or elsewhere that we think are going to be major drivers of cancer? And what are the genes that have played out and maybe don't have a role today? In cancer, And so we're constantly updating the panels that we have to make sure that they're most relevant, right, for clinical decision making. And this is something that requires an entire organization set up around. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, continuous updating is part of it. But um, uh, having the people and the processes in place, I, I mean, it's just really hard for the academic you know, who, who really ought to be your customers. They are your customers. Uh, they, <laughs> this idea that they can also compete or kind of carve off a little bit of their business for them, the business for themselves. Yeah. I, I don't think that, I don't think that's worked very well in practice. It isn't, you know, I, I think that part of it is we have 1200 employees today. We have an amazing medical reporting team, which is, you know, looking at the data, curating the data, making sure our medical reports are accurate because if you, there's drugs being approved every day around the globe, so they have to be accurate as to what's approved. They have to be accurate as to what's in clinical trials, and they have to be there um, for the physician to make those decisions in, in a report that's easily read whether I'm a community physician or I'm calling in from a major mac uh, academic institution. Okay. Okay. So let's come back to this moment when you're being presented the opportunity. You're talking to Foundation about the CEO job. So this company is by now, I don't know, eight, nine years old. Uh, a lot of work has been done in uh, putting together that panel to evaluate solid tumors, um, liquid tumors, um, a couple different marketed tests might even, um, and, and a lot of work had been done into attempting to win reimbursement from both public and private payers, convincing them that this information was um, worth spending a few thousand dollars on. Um, 
but a lot of a lot of partnerships were in place. Pharmaceutical companies wanted this information to help guide their clinical trials. Uh, you know, a, a really good business was there, uh, but certainly tons and tons of more potential, especially as part of a big, fully integrated company like Roche. So, what what did you see when you looked at this opportunity? Uh, as um, what you could do to kind of pick up the ball and run with it. We have Foundation One CDX on the market today and reimbursed by CMS, which is really important that we have the opportunity to make sure at a minimum Medicare patients are, are getting reimbursement. Some of the things that I thought were going to be really important is continuing to drive the concept of access also through the private payer market, as well as looking at the other assays that we have. So we have Foundation One CDX, which is for tissue-based testing. We also have Foundation One Liquid, which we are in the process of going through very similar regulatory approval and we'll be looking for reimbursement. And then we have a heme platform. So some of the opportunities there were really around developing the next generation of comprehensive genomic profiling, ensuring that we have access globally for patients, and um, and then what is the next innovation that's coming? How do we make sure that we understand, is it always going to be genomics-based? Is there another opportunity to look at alternative advanced diagnostics? And those are the things that we're looking at today, really focusing on how do we make our existing assays most relevant for patients and physicians, and then how do we stay in front of the curve on the next generation of treatments? And so we've been able to hire in um, a few new heads in our research organization that have very clear focus areas, and so I'm excited about what's going to come out of that innovation. But I'm also excited to see all the work we're doing on our existing assay. We're coming up with our next generation of tissue assay that we'll be looking at DNA and RNA. We have Foundation One Liquid, which um, received breakthrough designation, and we're going to be moving that through um, regulators and, and access to patients in the in the near term. So I'm I'm excited about the possibility that the future future holds, but I feel like I bring in from coming from the biotech industry and from Sarah Cannon is maybe a different lens as to how this is going to be even more useful for our biopharma partners as well as for physicians. And I think that leads to data. Data is something where we're, um, we've always been collecting data. We have the largest validated database, certainly for comprehensive genomic profiling. And we have a second database that we've done in collaboration with Flatiron Health for clinical genomic data, where we can marry the data that we have from a genomic standpoint with longitudinal outcomes for patients. And that's incredibly valuable data um, for biopharma, for physicians. And so I see that data component also as something that's critical to our future. Well, that piece I want to come back to, because I did write about that back in uh, April when you and your collaborators at Flatiron published a paper in JAMA about sort of connecting the dots between genotype and phenotype uh, to try to improve uh, patient care in the real world, which is, there's a whole piece there that Flatiron does and is very good at that yes. um, meshes or ought to mesh conceptually pretty well with what you guys do. Um, quick question. Now, I'm, uh, what, uh, how much of the potential market right now has been tapped? As in, what percentage of patients with cancer currently today get a tumor genomic profile? 
you know, so we're focused on more of the late stage patients, so the stage three and stage four. So if I focus on that, that's about 1.5 million patients a year are, are diagnosed in, in, with advanced cancer. And today we know that, you know, any, maybe 15 to 20% of patients are actually getting comprehensive genomic profiling. Another That's still 25, pretty small. It's small. Another 25% are getting single marker hotspot testing. But in general, you know, 60% of advanced cancer patients aren't getting any genomic testing at all. Okay, when you say single marker hotspot, so that's like a patient who comes in with lung cancer and the doctor thinks, okay, I know there's a one-off test here for an ALK mutation and it's 200 bucks, and I can order that and get the results pretty quickly to determine whether or not you should get an ALK inhibitor. But that's just a one-off test. It's just a one-off test. And remember, it uses the tissue. And so if you think about a lung cancer biopsy, that tissue is precious. You don't want to have to do more than you know, one biopsy on a lung cancer patient. And so if you're wasting time on doing just hotspot testing for one biomarker, say ALK, and that patient is ROS1, that patient is EGFR, patient is NTREC, you won't have the opportunity to pick it up. And that's why comprehensive profiling becomes so important in these diseases. Wow, even in 2019, I mean, 10 years or so after the founding of Foundation Medicine, something like 15% of that addressable market is being captured. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. It's just, um, you know, if you think about one of the other reasons I joined, I knew those statistics. (laughs) And you know that if you want patients to get the absolute best care, they're going to need to have comprehensive profiling. You can imagine lung cancer would be an obvious place, right? There's 12 to 13 clear driver mutations there. Um, But we're still seeing many patients just getting hotspot testing there. You know, it's funny, but this reminds me of an anecdote. When I was writing about foundation in the very early days, a friend of mine said, you know, hey, uh, my dad just got diagnosed with uh, advanced prostate cancer. And uh, do you know of anybody or anything that, you know, is coming up in the pipeline that that could be helpful? And I said, well, I mean, obviously you you want to find out as much information as possible about that the molecular characteristics of that tumor. So can you talk your dad's doctor into running a foundation medicine test and seeing, gee, maybe, I don't know, maybe he has an EGFR mutation. Mm-hmm. And if so, the doctor could look at that and say, aha, well, maybe we could give this person Herbitox, even though you wouldn't normally do that. I mean, that's that's the whole... That's just kind of one example, but it gives you an idea um, of the potential here that uh, when you know more, <laughs> you, can, you can make different decisions. Now, it's partly the burden of foundation medicine to prove that what I just outlined there is like an example of like valid clinical decision making. We don't really know that until we prove it, right? And that's part of what the, the task is in front of you. Yeah, it is part of the task. And I think about there's been a lot of proof points out there, and lung cancer is a great place to use as an example. If you think about things like the NCCN guidelines, if you think about uh, the Medicare reimbursement, they're all recommending that patients are patients with advanced cancer, so stage 3 or stage 4 cancer, are tested, and we're still not seeing it. And so it is our job to get out there. Uh, we have a number of programs kicking off around education, uh, both at the patient and physician level. We're certainly heavily involved with the advocacy in the community to make sure that people are aware of the benefits of comprehensive profiling. But that is, that is a task in front of us. Uh, today, 
the late stage patients that are being tested are often being tested too late. So they've gone through frontline or second line therapies and the physicians run out of options. And so he's using comprehensive genomic profiling as a way to look to see if there's another option where we know if he had used it or she had used it up front, that that patient would have been, had the opportunity to be on a more relevant therapy for their personal disease. Yeah, gathering all the information and doing it in a um, you know a validated way. I mean, that's uh, you can only do so many of these. Uh, it's not it's just not practical to run every single possibility. Um, but uh, I know you have a way for systematically capturing data and following people longitudinally, which we'll come back to in a second. But I want to come back to here uh, this question of you becoming the CEO because I, I can imagine maybe especially a lot of women in the audience might be listening and thinking, "Huh, how did you?" Um, you know, think about that decision. That's a big, uh, a big step. Um, not, uh, how did you think about that personally for your family and your career? It certainly, you know, had a great conversation with my family about the opportunity because I was also asking them all to move, uh, to Boston and just making sure I think I, I'm lucky that I have an incredibly supportive husband, um, and my kids were really supportive, which was nice. My 16-year-old, when we talked about it, um, you know, not many 16-year-olds want to pick up and move across the country to start their junior year in high school. But in talking to him a little bit about, he knows what I do for a living. He's heard me mention foundation medicine. He's, he's the one who said, that sounds like a really good opportunity, mom. Let's just do it. And uh, so we, we made the decision and uh, really happy to be here. I you know, the team here, you know them because you've met with many of them. It's a really talented, passionate, committed group of individuals who are absolutely convinced um, that this is the right thing for patients, as am I, and focus every day on making sure we have the most relevant test. You know, it's funny because I remember um, meeting you, I think for the first time at J.P. Morgan and you had been announced, I think, as the incoming CEO, but hadn't officially started yet. Uh, and I, we were sitting there talking with uh, your chief business officer, Melanie Nalasheri, and I think she did most of the talking, if I remember. And you, you were listening. Was that your um, approach in the early going, to, that you just, like a lot of CEOs from the outside, um, you just want to you know, meet with the team, listen a lot, learn before you kind of say, okay, here's the plan? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, had the opportunity and still have the opportunity to learn from the group here. So in coming in, a lot of it for me was understanding where we are today, what's working really well. Um, what did people see as challenges, both the people working at Foundation as well as what did our customers feel as challenges? And feel like I'm five months in, I'm got my starting to get my head around things and have a understanding of some of the challenges that we're facing, both internally and externally, and have a great executive team uh, to help lead through a lot of this. And um, we have, you know, this is where I feel like we're on the tipping point right now as it relates to comprehensive genomic profiling. We have a clear strategy for how we are moving forward and, um, and a, a unique strategy in the sense that we uh, have multiple test offerings. We have uh, data offerings. And so we've been working together at the executive team level to really path, uh, 
take that look at the path that we want to take forward that differentiates us from some of the other companies. But for me, it really, um, I really needed to listen and understand. Uh, I thought I understood some things, um, but I was working at arm's length when I was at uh, Roche and Genentech. So it's been a great opportunity to be inside. What would be one or two surprising learnings from your first few months on the job? So if I think about externally, one of the surprising learnings for me or one of the biggest shocks, I was aware of the statistics around testing, but what I wasn't aware of is the, the regular comparison of your test, the price of your test. And so having a lot of people ask about the cost of comprehensive genomic profiling is not a surprise in itself, but when you look at the value that the profiling brings to the patient and the long-term outcomes relative to the rest of the cost of healthcare, I was surprised that there was that much of a uh, shining light on that particular component of it. Um, the, second, the second piece um, was really around looking at treatment paradigms in the clinic and how quickly we could get our tests to patients, really understanding what we call turnaround times and making sure in hematology, when a patient, a patient may be seen every two weeks, and let's say for specific solid tumors, it may be every three. So how do we make sure that we're getting our tests there in ample time so that the physician can make the decisions they need? And there's a whole bunch that goes into it. First, you need the hospital to actually ship the sample. And so I hadn't thought through all of that in the past, which is, um, Getting relationships with pathologists across North America is really critical for our company, and it's something they've done a good job at and that we're continuing to work on. But I hadn't realized that one component of the, their releasing the samples is really critical to our success. Yeah, behind-the-scenes logistics, getting those samples in the door and getting the information back out to them in a easy to read and understand format. I mean, this is all part of that <laughs> flow chart that you, you got to have like down pat. Um, and yeah, the price sensitivity is a real deal in, in, in diagnostics. Yeah, no. Um, in looking at ways that we can just make sure people understand the value of the test to ensure, really to enable access, Luke, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. It's our ability to get out to physicians and patients and be able to have that awareness of testing is really critical. But this is where, I mean, that burden of evidence really is on you. You know, if you're going to charge several thousand dollars for a test, uh, you know, the whole history of, of diagnostics is largely when, when someone comes along with some great new whiz-bang technology, it costs money, and it usually adds cost to the whole grand scheme of things rather than reducing cost in the whole aggregate. So, like, but if you could prove that, you know, some of these, um, you know, the better information for lung cancer, for instance, uh, improves outcomes, survival, fewer follow-up visits, the whole health economic argument. Well, now, now you're really just speaking the language, right, of, of payers. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, we have probably 400 plus publications and presentations on this. And you, you've, uh, 
you've spoken uh, with our team about the data that we can provide. And so one of the things in that JAMA paper that becomes really clear that we've been able to educate the community on is the earlier the testing is done, the better the outcomes are going to be. And it's not just the earlier the testing is done, but also if it's done at first diagnosis of metastatic disease and that patient receives a therapy that's on the NCCN guidelines, their outcomes are much better than patients who haven't been tested. Um, and, and that's a very clear point. And I, I really appreciated the JAMA paper for exactly that. So we have an entire team here at Foundation Medicine, which is out doing a lot of this education. Um, and you're right, the onus is on us to make sure that we can continue to show the value of testing. But Flatiron is a really uh, helpful partner in making that case because they have visibility into those electronic medical records, uh, kind of that whole back half of what actually happened to the patient after they got, they had mutation X and then they got drug Y, what actually happened? And, you know, that sounds kind of straightforward, but it's incredibly difficult information to get in a in a crunchable way. Uh, and that that's where they, they help connect the dots for you. Yeah, no, it's such a valuable collaboration. I think the work with, with Flatiron Health on the clinical genomic database is something that is really differentiating for us. And it allows us to work with our biopharma partners in different ways. It allows us to work with physicians in different ways. Today, we, we um, have about 50,000 patients today in that clinical genomic database that are matched between Foundation Medicine and Flatiron Health. And being able to pair the genomic data with those outcomes is really important. It's important to um, physicians, obviously, for treatment. If they have the opportunity to look into the database and say, my patient looks like this, and now I can see 25 similar patients, how should I treat them for the best outcomes? That's that's priceless. I think the, the second component is with our biopharma partners and being able to provide things like real-world data control arms to think about how you can do smart trials or do research differently is something that's also um, been fantastic for both Flatiron Health and Foundation Medicine, um, as well as the people we work with. You know, um, I saw this recent partnership that you did with Bayer. Um, they have a part ownership in the uh, track fusion drug that was developed by Bloxo, now Lilly. And this strikes me, and I'm sure a lot of others, as a really interesting test case because here's a drug that's you really only can give based on its molec the, the tumor's molecular characteristics. Does the patient have one of these track gene fusions? Uh, but only something like 1% of patients have this. And how is the doctor supposed to know if I'm supposed to order up a one-off test for track fusion? That like doesn't practically make sense for every patient coming in the door. Well, there's a 1% chance you might have a track fusion, so I'll order you up a, a single one-off $200 test. No. <laughs> uh, but what if you could scan in a comprehensive way, uh, like with foundation medicine, across 300 genes, track being one of them, uh, now maybe this is actually a little more practical? Like we can actually find, aha, a lot more of these track fusion patients and say, here's a drug for you? So for both of the track drugs, the clinical trials were enrolled with the help of Foundation Medicine because we were able to track and find those patients for them. So that was one component that we played early on uh, for both companies. And then the second is exactly what you describe. And if you think about, um, you know, it, it is a lovely cycle, which is we need targeted therapies for patients. 
And foundation medicine is an enabler of that. And so I think from a biopharma perspective, we're all working together in the ecosystem to make sure that we're identifying new targets, creating drugs, and then making sure our uh, therapies and making sure patients are tested for that. And NTREC is a great example of, as an example, when um, Lara was approved, we had the opportunity to go back through the database and find all of the patients that we currently had. We went back for three years and said, where are the patients, where do they exist, and notified the physicians so that they would be eligible either for clinical trials or the available uh, FDA-approved therapy. It's pretty clear that the science is pointing in this direction. We're going to get more drugs like this aimed at you know, specific genetic markers like track fusions. Uh, and, I mean, it seems to me like you want to be that company that, that provides that kind of information, help people make those decisions. Absolutely. I think, you know, our ability to be able to impact clinical decision-making is critical. I know that um, our colleagues at Flatiron Health feel the same way. So working together with this clinical genomic database is um, in hoping to grow more and more each year. Today, we have 300,000 patients alone in our, our core database, uh, a genomic database, and 50,000, as I said, in the clinical genomic database. But as that grows, that is going to be incredibly helpful for all. When you look a few years out in this job, do you have any kind of hard numeric goals that you've got your eyes on that you want this test to be uh, done with a certain percentage of the eligible patient population or what other metrics are, are you looking at and really shooting for? Yeah, ideally, Luke, I'd love to see it with 100% of patients diagnosed with late-stage disease. And I think as the biology continues to evolve that we start to see it in patients with early disease because I think, it, it, I think uh, genomic testing is going to be helpful there. Um, our goal is to, to reach as many patients as possible, um, and we're doing it through a variety of ways, as I said. So the hard numbers um, today... Uh, I don't. I don't have a quote for you on hard numbers. We have working numbers behind the scenes, but our our ideal state is to have every patient that's got late stage disease to receive comprehensive genomic profiling. We also have, you know, our also our next thoughts are around how can we make sure that we can provide that data back in a meaningful way for clinical decision making. And so we're looking at both angles, and we can't do it alone. I mean, you know, in order for comprehensive genomic profiling, as I said, to be successful, you need amazing targeted therapies. So we have to work with Biopharma, and we love working with Biopharma. Today we have over 57 collaborations with Biopharma companies. Um, we also um, work together with a lot of clinical practices around um, how do we make the data most meaningful for them as they think about clinical decision support? Cindy Peretti, it's an interesting set of questions and challenges in front of you and your team at Foundation Medicine, uh, vitally important to the treatment of cancer. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks a lot, Luke. I really appreciate the invitation to be on the long run. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode. <laughs>